0: Shabbat shalom, and uh, thank you for joining us today. Uh, We have a big COVID outbreak in Colorado, and everyone's sick. In fact, most of our staff, they're sick, a number of our leaders, a number of our members. And so as a result, we went ahead and canceled services just to give everyone a chance to recuperate and make sure those that are healthy don't get it as well. But uh, keep everyone in your prayers as we all uh, get strengthened and strong again. We'll be back next week on site. But thank you for joining us today. Uh, We're in part two of a series on the kingdom of God. And I've entitled part two, When the Messiah Became King. In series number one, we discovered that Jesus' central message and work was to usher in and establish the long awaited kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. In fact, he called this the gospel of God. It all began nearly 2,000 years ago. And as prophesied, this kingdom is still growing and will come into its glorious phase when Jesus returns. In this teaching, we're going to look at when Jesus the Messiah became king over his father's kingdom and what that means for us as followers. So I'm going to pick this up in Daniel, an ancient prophecy that Daniel gave. Uh, And this has to do with the kingdoms that he saw in his vision. This is uh, chapter 7. And in the midst of these uh, visions that he was having, he had this really uh, peculiar one that resolves around or revolves around this figure called the Son of Man. So I'm going to pick this up. It's verse 13 of Daniel chapter 7. Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. Keep that in mind, this phrase, son of man. One like a son of man was coming. Was coming where? Was coming from where and going where, right? So this son of man, who is this figure that we're looking at? And what does it mean for us today? Uh, I think it's interesting to note that this is one of the uh, favorite titles that Yeshua uses in reference to himself, the son of man. And you'll see in a few moments why that's so uh, powerful. Uh, So it says one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So in this passage that we're looking at, the Son of Man is coming into heaven. This is where the Ancient of Days dwells. This is heaven. And the Son of Man, presumably from the earth, is ascending into heaven. He's being presented before the Ancient of Days, before his throne, in his throne room, in the Holy of Holies, in heaven. This is significant in every way. Verse 14. And to him, the Son of Man, to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So I want us to think about about that for a moment, because we're talking about the kingdom of God. And of course, a kingdom is a realm in which a king oversees. He has authority and power and governs his realm. His realm has dominion. It has geography, whether that's spiritual or spiritual. Or natural you know it's a dominion in which he oversees and this uh this kingdom that we're looking at right now is a kingdom that's going to be given to the son of man and if you'll note it says it's an everlasting kingdom it's a kingdom that will never end we call that the eternal kingdom all these other kingdoms that we see in daniel they all come on the scene and then they're all uprooted they they cease to exist but this kingdom The kingdom of God is a kingdom that will come and exist on the earth forever. This is part of the prophecy. In fact, if you have a chance, go back to Daniel chapter 2 and read the vision that Daniel has concerning the four earthly empires and then on the heels of the fourth one, the fifth eternal kingdom that comes from heaven and then resides here forevermore. Verse 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. This is, again, in reference to the kingdom of God coming from heaven to the earth. It's given to the Son of Man. It says it will never be destroyed. And when does it come? It says in the days of those kings. Which kings? Well, the kings in the vision that Daniel had. There's four kingdoms. In the fourth kingdom, is the kingdom of Rome. Almost every scholar admits, or I shouldn't say admits, most scholars agree that the Roman Empire is the fourth empire in Daniel's vision. And so in the days of those kings, the kings of the Roman Empire, it's in their time period that the kingdom of God arrives. It enters onto the scene, the kingdom that will never end. And that's going to be the timing of it. We've got to look to the Roman Empire for that timing element. says that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. So again, Daniel's kingdoms, Babylon. Then we have the Medes and the Persians, the Medo-Persian Empire. On the heels of that, Greece comes in and becomes the world empire. And on the heels of Greece, rome right and in the days of those kings of course the days of the roman kings when rome turns from a republic into um, a kingdom in which now they're going to be governed by kings rather than a republic it's in that time period that the messiah shows up that the kingdom of god arrives and it's true when you think about it when was jesus born when did jesus arrive on the scene well if you look at the timing of that we have the first king of, uh, I think it's the first or second king of Rome that's on the scene, Augustus, 27 BC to 14 AD. And it's within that time period that Jesus is born. There, there we see the birth of Messiah. And then uh, when Jesus basically lives his life and then suffers and dies and rises from the dead, we'll note that there's another king on the throne at that point, so that's Tiberius. And uh, he reigns from 14 uh, AD to 37 AD. And so in these first couple kings of the Roman Empire, we have the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, who becomes king, who ushers in the kingdom of God, just as Daniel prophesied. It's powerful when you think about it. Verse 45, Daniel chapter two and verse 45, going back earlier to this vision. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and then it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. So these four empires rise, one, on the, uh, one after the, uh, another. And then when the final one comes, it too falls. In fact, when you think about it, the prophecy is that all of them will ultimately fall, yet the kingdom of God will never fall. It's the one that emerges and never goes away. In fact, it increases and grows forever and ever and ever. It's fascinating, right? So the big question is, did Rome fall due to the rise of the kingdom of God on earth? That's an interesting and hotly debated issue, but suffice it to say that as prophesied, the great world empire, Rome, falls as the kingdom of God rises and grows that's indisputable that's indisputable let's go back to uh, psalm 2 which also picks up this idea of of the messiah becoming king Uh, so what we have is jesus claiming to be the messiah of course and demonstrating that he is the messiah Uh, but there's this other issue in the scriptures and that is is when the messiah becomes king not only the savior Uh, Not only the one anointed by God uh, to save the world, but the one that's anointed by God to rule and reign over all of creation. And Psalm 2, you know, really gives us some insight to that. So I'm going to pick it up and and read this. Psalm chapter 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel against together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, Let us tear their fetters fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Now, when you think about that for a moment, what that implies is this. That God is involved in the affairs of this world and that God holds the kings of this world accountable and that God has a king that's over all of them and they're all going to answer to this king and that king is in fact David. David is the forerunner in this kingdom that's coming to us. Let me just read Psalm 89, a few other psalms, but let me start in Psalm 89, read this to you. Says, I have come, or I'm sorry, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. King David was promised by God that his throne would endure forever and ever, that through his seed the kingdom would be established forever, and that it would never leave his throne. Goes on to say, He will cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. I also will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth, king of kings. This is what we see in David, that he's the forerunner of Messiah, who is in fact the king of kings. Verse 28, my loving kindness, I will keep for him forever and my covenant shall be confirmed to him so I will establish his descendants forever and his throne as the days of heaven. Again, this is the eternal kingdom to come. Verse 30, if his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness in the sky is faithful. David's kingdom shall never end. David's throne will never miss having on it one of his descendants, even if they're disobedient. And we've seen the failure of King David. We saw the failure of his son Solomon. We've seen the failure of a number of those descendants of David over and over and over. And yet God swore to him, even in your disobedience, I will not violate my oath that I swore to you that your throne will be established forever and ever. Verse uh, seven in Psalm chapter two. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. Now, this is a very messianic uh, passage. Uh, it's, it's really kind of um, inspired a lot of commentaries related to this idea that within this passage, the Messiah is being revealed. Of course, in the forerunner of David, but, but on and, and, and later it's, it's really going to be one who comes, who is a descendant of David, who is in fact the Messiah, who is anointed by God to become king over all of creation, not just the earth, but all of creation, things seen and unseen, from the heavens all the way down to the earth and below the earth, he becomes Lord over all of it. And it says here, he said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, this is kind of an ancient Near East um, uh, language or liturgy for the coronation of a king. This is what kings would say over their sons or whoever they anoint to take the kingdom after them. This is part of the phraseology that's found. And it's, it's kind of unique to ancient Near East uh, 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 kingships and kingdoms. And so, this whole idea that he says to me, You are my son, today I've begotten you, is in reference to the day that the son becomes king, the day in which the father passes off to the son his kingdom. And it's at that point that the son becomes king of kings and lord of lords, as the father steps aside and allows his son to rule and reign over his kingdom. Verse 8 Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. This is so powerful when you think about it. The promises that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the descendants of Jacob, that they would have a land, a promised land, that was you know, flowing with milk and honey, and that that was theirs, right? That was theirs to keep. Uh, that, that, that's a huge promise. But it's more than that. It's more than that. Not only are they given the promised land, but it says to the Messiah, all the nations will be given to him. All of that is given to him. And so it's not just the promised land. It's the world as we know it. And we in Messiah become the ones that inherit the world as we know it. So let me go on and, and uh, kind of, kind of um, tie this together. In verse 10, God now speaks to the kings of this world. He says, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the son that he he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Those who fight against him and his agenda, they will experience the wrath of God in their lives, both in this world and the world to come. But to those who acknowledge the choice of the creator of the universe, the one who says this is my king whom I've installed on Mount Zion, for those who take refuge in him, God says, I will bless you. I will bless you now and I will bless you in the age to come. Let's jump all the way forward now. I want to take a look at the Apostle Paul and how he actually reaches back to Psalm 2 and clarifies for us the fulfillment when the Messiah actually became king. So in Acts chapter 13, we're jumping right in the middle of the chapter. There's, there's a greater context. I don't have time to develop that. You can look at that for yourselves. But Paul is in the middle of a, of a speech that he's given to Jews and also the god uh, among them. So I'll pick that reading up in verse 26. It says, brethren, sons of Abraham's family and those among you who fear God, to us the message of salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by, by condemning him. And though they found no ground for, him, for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and they laid him in a tomb. Acts 13, 30. But God raised him from the dead. God raised him. The one who was murdered on the cross, his blood poured out. All of the agony culminating in the death of his son the burial of his son on the third day, God raised him from the dead. Now, that, 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 that is the game changer, right? Of all the descendants of David, this is the one. No other descendant of David was raised from the dead. Not even David himself. This is the one, this is the Messiah. He's the one that God raised from the dead. Verse 31, and for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers. Here it is, verse 33, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm you are my son today i have begotten you wow paul here is tying in the resurrection of jesus with the fulfillment of god's promise to coronate his son as king over all forever and ever what we see in the forerunner of david is going to be fulfilled in yeshua the messiah and Yeshua the Messiah being raised from the dead on that, in that event, in the ascension afterwards, he becomes king of kings and Lord of lords. It's fulfilled. Acts thirteen thirty four. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead and no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Everything that was promised to David, the power, the glory, the authority, the kingdom, all of that is given to Yeshua the Messiah, son of David, son of man, son of David, son of God. It's all given. Everything that was promised come to its fullness is actualized in Yeshua the Messiah. Verses 35 and 36. Therefore, he also says in another Psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, was laid among his fathers, and underwent decay. But he went on, or I'm sorry, but he who God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Yeshua the Messiah, he is the one. It's him that God raised from the dead. He's not only the Messiah, he's king of kings and Lord of lords. And because of who he is, the Messiah and the king, we can experience freedom and liberty from the kingdom of sin and death. What the law of Moses could not do is now accomplished through David's descendants, specifically Yeshua the Messiah, who in his resurrection and ascension becomes king of kings and lord of lords. As we uh, bring this to a conclusion, I want to make some applications for us. The central message in the first part of this series, we've developed that. The central message that Jesus the Messiah proclaimed and demonstrated was called the gospel of God. Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of God, the good news of God, the glad tidings of God. And that gospel specifically was that the long-awaited kingdom of God had finally arrived and everyone was invited to enter it by faith. Not only had the kingdom come, but Jesus, the Messiah, who died on the cross to make atonement for our sins, was then raised from the dead on the third day and appeared to many for 40 days. And then he ascends on the clouds into heaven to be coronated King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In fact, let's jump into Acts chapter one. Let's look at this ascension. It all ties together the resurrection and the ascension with Psalms 2 and with Daniel 7. It's all knitted together. Acts 1. I'm going to start in verse 9. After he had said these things, Jesus here speaking to his disciples. It's that last, last conversation that he has with them before he ascends. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on and a cloud received him out of their sight. A cloud, isn't that interesting? Yeah, if we go back to the Daniel passage, it says, I kept looking in the night visions. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And here we have Yeshua ascending in the clouds. He's going somewhere. He's ascending with the clouds into heaven, just like Daniel prophesied. Daniel saw the vision of the ascension of Yeshua. And Yeshua sends into the clouds, into heaven to receive the glory, the power, and the authority of the kingdom of God. He becomes king of kings and lord of lords. It says that he sits at the right hand of God with a scepter, the scepter of God, the sign of authority and power to rule and reign. He sits down because he's the king. Kings sit, right? He sits on the throne of, of his father, the throne promised to David. He's the son of man. He's the son of God. And he's the son of David. And he's the one that sits as king of kings over all creation. Yeshua, our Messiah, not just the Messiah. He's the king of kings and Lord of lords. And as they were gazing intently to the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Just like he ascended in the clouds and went into the heavenlies, this same Jesus, the Messiah, who's become King of kings and Lord of lords, that Messiah, that king is coming back in the same way that he left. How did he leave? On the clouds. How's he coming again? On the clouds of heaven. Behold, he comes on the clouds and every eye will see him even those that pierced him. And so we have this uh, amazing connection with the writers of the apostolic scriptures and with those prophecies made to King David in the Psalms and also uh, the prophecies in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. Goes on to say he is now seated at the right hand of God. Um, Actually, this is my commentary. He's now seated at the right hand of God where he's ruling and reigning over all authorities and powers in heaven, and in earth. So what does that mean for us, the followers of Jesus? What does that mean for us who have received Jesus as the Messiah, Savior, and also as King? What does that mean? Well, it means this. Our rabbi, our rabbi, is king of kings, and Lord of Lords. Our Rabbi is not just the Messiah. He's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He's ruling and reigning over everything. The Father has given to him the kingdom, the rule and reign to govern us, to heal us, to restore us. That's our Rabbi, Rabbi Yeshua Hamashiach. I had some interactions with an Orthodox, actually ultra-Orthodox Jewish Rabbi, and uh, we were dialoguing, and uh, as we did that, he made some comments about uh, asking us who we who we were, and he he was thinking that we were Christians of some sort. Uh, and I began to explain to him uh, that we're Messianic. And as I was beginning to explain, he just he took off. I mean, he kind of knew what we were talking about. He says, "No, I know I know who I know who you are. You, you know who who are Messianics, right? And in contrast to maybe." what we understand about Catholics or Protestants. He says, I know who you are. He says, we know your rabbi. We know the one from Galilee. Your rabbi is from Nazareth in Galilee. I thought that was fascinating that he would say that. Uh, And I don't know if he was making that pejorative. I don't think he was. I don't think he was really spinning that very positive either. I think he was kind of neutral. He was just making those comments. But I thought to myself, that's a great compliment. That, that, that is my rabbi. That is our rabbi. He is from Galilee. He is the one that has come. suffered and died for us. On the cross making an atonement for our sins. So that we could be forgiven. And ushered into the rule and reign. Of our father in heaven. Into the dominion. Of the kingdom of God. Experiencing the compassionate. And wise rule. Of the kingdom of heaven. Now in him. In the messiah we are forgiven and born again forgiven now we've all been involved in sin we all have a past we all have skeletons in the closet yet we have this you know ongoing struggle with guilt and shame well in messiah we've been forgiven we've been cleansed of that we don't carry the burden of shame and guilt anymore we've been freed from that and that liberty that freedom from guilt and shame I mean, that's priceless. I wouldn't give that up for anything. That in Messiah, not only have my past sins been forgiven, my present sins are forgiven. The sins I sin in the future, forgiven. That was the promise of God. David cried out, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord no longer takes into account. This is what we have in Yeshua, the Messiah. He's the one that has ushered in the kingdom of God. The dominion of the Father, the rule and reign of the Father in heaven has come to the earth. It arrived here 2,000 years ago. His love, his joy, his peace, meaning and purpose, all tied into his kingdom. It's here. It arrived 2,000 years ago. And he has an agenda. Jesus has an agenda, a kingdom agenda. And that agenda is to advance his kingdom On this earth, think about that for a moment. I know a lot of people say, well, there's no way his kingdom's here because if his kingdom's here, how do you explain all the evil, all the sin, all the suffering and so forth? Well, I didn't say it was here in its fullness. I said it's arrived. It's here. It's established. It's growing. It's going somewhere. It's going to come into its glorious phase when he returns. But suffice it to say, it's already here. This is what he said. When he was teaching his disciples how to pray he says pray in this way our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven on earth think about that for a moment your kingdom that's in heaven he says let your kingdom come let your king come where to the earth let your kingdom come and let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus has opened the way into this kingdom. He's opened it up to all who will turn from their sin and receive him as their savior and king. If you have not done that, you need to do that. You need to bow your head and just say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I'm wracked with guilt and shame. I, I come, I bring that before you. I bow before you. Forgive me, forgive me. I receive you as my savior and my king. You need, if you haven't done that, you need to do that and thereby enter into that kingdom, that kingdom of forgiveness and cleansing of hope, of joy and love. That's what you need to move into. This kingdom is an eternal kingdom. It will never, ever end. Mark chapter four, I want to read this to you. And Jesus said, how shall we picture the kingdom of God? Or by what parable should we uh, present it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms branches so that the birds of the air can rest or can nest under its shade. He says this is a picture of the kingdom. And the picture he gives us is the picture of a mustard seed. It starts and it's so small that no one notices. In fact, it's the smallest of all the seeds. So when you take and look at the agricultural context of this parable, it's the smallest, smallest one of all the other seeds. And yet when it grows, it gets larger. And larger and larger till finally it's larger than all of the other plants combined, combined. So Jesus's kingdom grows and that kingdom gets bigger than any other kingdom in this world. In fact, all the other kingdoms put together are outnumbered by the subjects of his king or his kingdom. His kingdom is by far the largest. We've seen that. The growth of his kingdom throughout the world for 2000 years now is the largest in terms of kingdoms. It is the largest and it's still growing and will continue to grow until he comes again. He has empowered and commissioned us to influence and lead others into his kingdom. That's Matthew 28. We're familiar with that. I want to read that again. This is our mission, our vision. This is what we're called to do. This is our mandate. You know, coming coming to congregation a weekend, a week out, a weekend, a week out. There's so much tied into that. It's so powerful and the blessings associated. But it's more than that. It's more. We have a mandate. We have a commission, right? Jesus says that he came up and spoke to his disciples saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's our mandate, to go and make disciples of the nations, to go and lead people into the kingdom of God, to help people receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior as their king and savior. That's our job. That's what we're supposed to be doing. We need to look around at the people in our lives. They got us put in our lives. We need to ask them about, about Jesus. We need to have a dialogue with them about Jesus. Now, of course, you want to do that at uh, the appropriate timing, right? But to ask questions that lead them into a dialogue about Jesus and see where that goes is what we're called to do we got to talk about Jesus. we got to introduce them to Jesus and make sure that they enter into the kingdom of God and experience what was promised to all of humanity, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. That's our job. And then on the heels of that, to teach them to observe all that he's commanded. This is where we teach them the ways of God. This is where we teach them the Torah, which means the instructions of God so that they can experience liberty in their lives on earth as it is in heaven. Bring them into the kingdom, teach them Torah. That's what we do. That's who we are. That's what makes us unique, by the way. We don't just believe in Jesus. We also embrace the Torah as a way of life. We don't just believe in the Torah. We also believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. That's so important for us to understand. Most churches, they they, they, they don't want much to do with the Torah. Rabbinic synagogues, nothing to do with Jesus. We're that middle zone. We believe in Jesus and we celebrate the commandments of God. That's why I always tell people, if you're looking for a place to, to, to connect, if you're looking for a place to sow into, to invest, we're it. We're one of a few, uh, you know, around, there's not a lot of us around. This is a growing thing. This is a phenomenon that's growing, but I'll tell you what, there's not a lot of them out there and we need your help. We need you to connect. We need you to join us. We need your donations. We're going somewhere. We're advancing the kingdom of heaven on earth or on, on earth and as it is in heaven. And we can't do that alone. We can't do that without you. So as we join together and partner together, we're going to be able to do some amazing things. Especially, especially now as the nations find themselves in a tremendous crisis and it's getting worse. We have the answers. We have that which humanity is longing for. And so I really believe that we need to get ready and and to share our faith and to help people connect with the living God. All right, I just want to close and just bless you uh, with the Aaronic Benediction. This is a fascinating benediction uh, in that God says, if you'll speak it, I'll engage it. If you won't speak it, I won't engage it. In other words God's not going to bring these blessings unless the priests speak them over the people and I know that you might be hung up on well there's no Levitical priests and you're not saying you're a Levite are you no I'm not I'm saying that uh, the Melchizedek priesthood transcends levy and in fact it's higher than levy and uh, I'm a priest just like you're a priest in the Melchizedek priesthood through Yeshua the Messiah and so As a fellow priest, I just want to speak this over your life, over your families, and over uh, God's people everywhere. So just receive this. Yahweh spoke to Moses. Tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the people of Israel. Say to them, Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh smile on you and gift you. Yahweh, look you full in the face and make you prosper. In so doing, they will place my name on the people of Israel. And then I will confirm it by blessing them. Shabbat shalom. See you next week.